Hey y'all, welcome to Best Virginia, the podcast where we talk about the fascinating history, culture, and folklore of the wild and wonderful state of West Virginia. You got shot, you got stabbed, you lost everything that you had. There ain't no time to wonder why, but to hang your head and cry, oh no. experience i'm sure you're talking about your that you sense and your senses you know there's there is so much research that suggests that our senses don't pick up on everything that actually happens around us mm-hmm. and you know between reality and our senses there is a lot of disparity because you know there is the fact that color does not exist until we see it is a huge right. thing like mm-hmm. we there are there are colors and light or or, uh, light waves and sound waves that we can't experience Mm -hmm. you know that we know exist like other people won't say that no those aren't real um but they exist there's proof there's proof that those things exist Mm -hmm. like certain colors and certain variations of colors and certain sound waves and light waves so there is proof that we can't perceive everything um so you know, lending to the skepticism earlier, um, the fact that there, I know there are skeptics listening, the, mm-hmm. but the, there's proof that you can't see everything and you can't hear everything um, that you're, it's just not possible to. I mean, there's things that there are things that you don't um, recognize or pay attention to, mm-hmm. um, but also the things that you just cannot process um, that are just extra, what I would consider extra dimensional. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, I think, uh, going back to what you said earlier about being intelligent, uh, these apparitions being intelligent, I think is such a huge statement because, um, there are, there's proof that there are other dimensions than what we can perceive mm-hmm. and there's scientific proof. You can't deny that. And there's a lot of research that says that. And, you know, there are also a lot of sci-fi movies and things like that, that I, you know, that I probably <laughs> love. But also <laughs> that contradict it. Um, but the fact that there's so much evidence that goes like, hey, there are there's a hundred percent things that are happening around you that you don't even that you could never even understand without right. proper equipment. Um, and, and even then, who knows? Like their their equipment um, advances every day, technology mm-hmm. advances every day. So there are things that we can know now that would have been a joke ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 
like you mentioned earlier with some equipment being rudimentary um, or, or like the early, uh, some of your early investigations as compared to now, whenever you've got more advanced equipment and things like that and are able to sense things, there's stuff that's not even been invented yet. That stuff hasn't, hadn't even been invented, you know, 10, 15, 20 mm-hmm. years ago. So right. we're able to, to learn things that, that we would not have been able to learn based on where we're at in the world mm-hmm. so many years ago. Right. So the fact that reality differs from what we perceive, I think is a really big part of what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, to go back to your point, um, you know, the senses do play a big part in what we do. You know, when you go into a location such as West Virginia State Penitentiary and it's completely dark, you're relying on senses other than sight. Your hearing becomes extremely acute. Um, your uh, your smell becomes extremely acute. You know, just to, to smell cigarette smoke or cigar smoke or or whiskey smoke uh, or whiskey smoke, whiskey smell. Um, you know, stuff like that. Um, and, and your your sense of your sense of feel um, to hear to feel by vibrations. Um, you know, and stuff like that. So we are relying on things that. Uh, that are other than sight. And, you know, I, I think the way we conduct our investigations is we go in with the respect of the history and with any entity that we're trying to communicate with. So we base our investigations on the fact that we are going to attempt to communicate with something that had a human existence. They lived, they died, and for some reason they're at this location. So we go in with that respect level. um, And I think because of that, we get the respect in return, i.e. we get communication. Um, You know, we don't go in with bravado or, or thumping our chest or anything like that. We legit want to tell their story and that's what we tell them and I think because of that um, we do get those responses that maybe some other teams don't get um, that when you go in and and really try to provoke uh, a spirit to communicate with you uh, to us that's unnecessary and so to be able to do that and get those responses it is that respect level and I I think the, the people or the spirits that we're trying to communicate with they were people at one one time and you know, nobody wants to go through life not being recognized, right? The, the very core of human existence is to be noticed, to be accepted, and to be in a group. And I think the same thing is with these spirits that we're trying to communicate with. So when you go in and you try to sit down and actually have a communication with them, um, and you give them that respect, uh, I think you'll get a response because of that. And, and like I said, we've been very fortunate to, to get those responses. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right, I mean, for what that's worth. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, to be... and and correct me if I'm wrong, but at least my perspective is that if you're going to, if you have difficulty moving on to the next plane or the next dimension, if you're kind of tethered to here, there's a level of humanity that, you know, that has to be acknowledged Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, there's something I'm kind of, um, I subscribe to, um, again, I don't know if you do or not, but I've subscribed to the, the thought that there is something that is keeping those spirits here or those mm-hmm. apparitions here, yeah. uh, whether it be, you know, something that was kind of, um, you know, unachieved or, um, you know, what un, uh, an unmet need, whatever that mm-hmm. is. And, I, you know, our needs drive us as living beings. Mm-hmm. So what, is, and that is energy that is generated. So where does that go? And mm-hmm. I, I've, I've always kind of thought of, um, you know, the, extra dimensional or paranormal uh, perspective as energy, you know, because that that's energy that you're noticing that your senses are registering 
which is you know high enough to where your sensors are registering because there there are sound like I mentioned earlier there's levels of sound and you know and visual waves that are not high enough to even recognize so there's something that is uh, reaching out to these people and to you mm-hmm. that is strong enough to bring about a response so what what about that is is tethering you to this world or, or at least to our perception of it right. and and I think that is to me, that makes me, you know, obviously question a lot of my own existence and things like that, which is a whole different podcast. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and that's what that's what we're doing, right? I mean, everybody is going to die. That is just a fact of life. And it's it's the 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 want to know what's going to happen after this, right? Um, so to your point, I, I truly believe if you subscribe to the theory that we're created of, of energy and energy cannot be created or destroyed, we have to go somewhere. Something happens after we die. Um, and to your point, I, I personally, I think there are three reasons why um, a spirit may be close, what I'll call closer to the veil between this and whatever's next. Um, the first one is unfinished business, that there's something that has to be fulfilled or achieved before that spirit can move on. Um, the second one is that they just don't know how to reach that light, right? They know that they're dead, but they can't find the direction to get to the next realm, or we'll call it the light. Um, I think we see this a lot with children. Um, they they just can't find that way. And then the third one is the fear of retribution of what's happening, going to happen next based on the life they lived. And I think that's what we see a lot of with jails and prisons. Um, they're completely fine with staying where they were or what they're comfortable with uh, because they don't want to face a quote-unquote hell or retribution in the next realm and so those are the three theories that we kind of work on um, again they're all theories and it, we're all working with theories on this but those are the ones that we operate on for sure and as far as like a lot of energy being focused in prisons and things like that I you know I think that crosses again I feel like you and I could do a whole totally different podcast about this stuff because you know they're there are so many people who believe they did what they did because what they thought because they did because they did what they did because they thought it was right. And, you know, to ask them to, okay, you've spent the last 15, 20, 30, 40, even 50 years serving this life sentence or this sentence because of what you believed was truly right or what you're supposed to do. Um, now you get to have no control and move on to the next life. And who knows, who even knows what that is. So mm-hmm. there would of course be with that resistance. And right, right. Yeah, I, I think you and I would differ a little bit on that. I, I, right. I think that some people just have a moral compass that, um, you know, they, they, they may, I mean, they may not, they know it's wrong, but they still proceed with that action that morally, um, you know, as we as humans think morally is, is incorrect. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that they were, quote unquote, thinking they were right, um, but it was what gave them the gratification and what's moved what uh, moved on from, uh, again, that that direct moral compass as we would describe it. Um, so, yeah, but again, back to that point, I do think that that fear of retribution, especially when we're talking about things like West Virginia State Penitentiary or Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary, uh, those, those spirits that we've connected with, um, I, I think they're just comfortable where they're at and um, they, they don't want to face whatever's next. And again, who knows what that is? Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian, so I do have my belief set, but uh, who knows what it is? Um, but the, those, again, those are the theories that we're working with when we do these investigations. Yeah, for sure. And I respect that. And I think having, you know, 
obviously from a scientific perspective, you have to have a set of theories that you're operating from mm -hmm. whenever you approach each experiment, so to call it. Um, right. <clears throat> so I do think, you know, you have to have what you're looking for or otherwise you're just, you know, making a YouTube video that you know, <laughs> is or is not cool. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I, I do think that is important. And, you know, I, again, I think, you know, having, having an idea of what you're looking for and looking to disprove that I think is super, uh, super cool. It's a good approach, um, it, you know, from a scientific perspective and a humanistic approach, because, you know, we're much more likely to believe things that, uh, that coincide with what we already believe in uh, than as opposed to creating a new schema for how we look at things. Mm -hmm. um, so, if we believe something that contradicts what we already believe, then, you know, there's a higher uh, likelihood that it is true or is um, at least valuable in, in some way. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I could talk about this stuff for. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. <laughs> <laughs> so to try not to keep you for too long. Um, earlier, we talked about the changes in equipment versus when, you know, wh where you started with a couple of night vision cameras and things like that, or a couple of night vision uh, cameras and digital cameras. And then, then you were talking about laser grids and stuff like that, which is right. totally sci-fi <laughs> to me, uh, which, which I, which is not a bad thing to me, but um, so I, I do, do you care to talk about some of the equipment you use or, you know? No, not what? at all. Okay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I said, the, the basic that we start with is the voice recorders. Uh, you know, we don't go anywhere without them. And in fact, when we start an investigation, as soon as we cross that threshold into the day investigation, we have our voice recorders running um, because contrary to popular beliefs, hauntings just don't happen at night, right? They can happen anytime. We've captured some of our best evidence during the day. So for example, when we went into the Lizzie Borden house um, or we went into West Virginia for the second time, our voice recorders are going immediately. So and they run throughout the duration of the investigation. So we have those, um, we actually have 12 of those. So one we all carry, one that each of us will carry, and then we leave them in different locations and they'll be stationary during the night in that location and run for the duration of the investigation. So we have those, we have night vision video cameras. Um, we've got 15 of those now where we will set up in different locations and again, let them run stationary during the night. Uh, we all wear body cameras. So we have a, our point of view perspective um, as well as it gives us a timestamp of where everybody is at a particular time. So for example, if I'm listening to audio and at eight o'clock in um, you know, the infirmary, I capture a noise I can't explain, I'm gonna go back and figure out where everybody is at that time to make sure it's not one of us causing that noise. Um, so we wear body cameras. Um, and so then that, that kind of rounds out the audio and visual part of it. Um, then we have pieces of handheld equipment that we'll take with us. Um, the first one is what we call a spirit box. And generally speaking, it's an AM FM radio that's been modified to very quickly sweep through frequencies. So when you turn it on, you hear as it's running through these frequencies. The idea is that the spirits can use the white noise to communicate with us. So they'll essentially talk through the, through the frequencies. Um, 
So for example, when we were at the Ma Barker house, when we captured the, they murdered us, we the ones dead, that was on the spirit box. And if you picture this running so quickly through frequencies, you shouldn't hear a full phrase like that. That's what makes it so compelling. Um, so we use that. Uh, we have a device called um, an EDI box. This is a device that it measures vibrations, so you set it down, um, and if anything approaches it, like footsteps or anything, it has a vibration meter on it that will alarm. It also has a temperature gauge. If the temperature fluctuates high or low uh, very rapidly, it will alarm. Um, it also has a built-in EMF meter, which is an electronic uh, or, or electromagnetic field reader. Uh, the theory is that since spirits are made out of energy, that if they approach this or touch the box in any way, that EMF meter will go up. It'll spike, so it has a light array um, from green to red, red being the highest. Um, we have what we call K2 meters, again, electromagnetic field readers. Uh, they do also have a light array. Again, if, if, if they go from green to red, and the theory is if you're in a location and there's no energy acting upon these devices, they should never spike. So theoretically, I should be able to set it down in the middle of the room, know that there's no power acting upon it. And if I get a reading at any point in time, I need to figure out what is causing that. Um, so we, we got several really great hits when we were at the West Virginia State Penitentiary and there's, there's no energy acting on it. So it should stay stationary, but yet when we get these spikes, that to us is unexplainable. Um, we do use laser grids in conjunction with our night vision video cameras. So we'll set them up beside the video cameras. Again, the idea being that if a spirit uh, walks across, um, we're more apt to see it if it cuts off those laser grids. And we've used that to some, some success. And um, yeah, so we have uh, different things like that. Uh, we're also very big on what we call trigger items. So we will research the location and we will take items designed to elicit a response from the spirits in that location. So for example, we'll start with the West Virginia State Penitentiary on this one. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the inmates there who is, and we'll, I'll go into the story a little bit more in depth in a minute, um, one of the inmates there, um, his, his vices were um, tobacco and watching days of our lives. So what we did is we took some tobacco in there um, and some cigarettes and we downloaded an episode of Days of Our Lives on our laptop and we let him watch that in his cell. And uh, I think because of that, we were able to get some pretty cool responses off of that. Um, if we're dealing with a, a child spirit, we'll take a teddy bear or um, candy or marbles or something like that, again, to try to trigger a response from the spirits that are there. So that really kind of rounds out what we take on these investigations. Okay. Wow. That's a lot of stuff. <laughs> um, but, <laughs> it, is. You know, it is. Again, I think that's, you know, on a couple different levels, I think that's super important because you're hitting it from us. You know, there's so much uh, equipment involved to where like, you can't just say, Oh, it's just something they felt or whatever. There is equipment that regulates temperature and, you know, whether energy is involved as far as like with the laser grids and things like that, interrupting those patterns um, that suggest otherwise. So that's a big deal. Uh, trigger items. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's something that I had that I mentioned to bring up um, or that I, you know, that I intended to bring up as far as, you know, what explain what a trigger you did a little bit, but as far as, you know, what would, you know, what would constitute, whether a trigger item is or is not um, decided for a person, if that makes any sense. If not, I can ask. Well, no, no, it, it, it does. So when we go through our history and, and we do the historical research before we go to these locations, we try to find interesting 
parallels between any of the spirits that 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 are reported to haunt the location and again things that we can take with us to elicit a response from that um, so for example when we looked at the research of the saint augustine lighthouse one of the reports are that there was a light keeper there um, and every day or every night he would smoke a pipe and so we took a pipe with, you know, the, the, the pipe tobacco and all of that, and we left it in the room for him. And we say, this is yours. You know, we acknowledge that you're here. We acknowledge that you liked this. Um, and so we're going to leave this for you. When we went to Fort Mifflin, um, one of the casemates, now a casemate is a subterranean room where they held munitions during the Revolutionary War. They converted one of these casemates into a solitary confinement cell. So you imagine you're seven feet underground, no sunlight, no air movement or anything, and they've got you in this, this solitary confinement cell before they hang you for treason. Um, so the, there was a gentleman named William Howe. He was, again, tried for treason. He was put in the solitary confinement cell. So we, we said to ourselves, what would somebody in solitary Solitary confinement want. We took him some bread, we took him some water, and we, uh, we left a cigarette. We left that in the room for him. We said, this is yours. If you want to, to, to partake of it in any way, go for it, but we're going to leave it for you. And um, so we left it, and we walked out, and we started doing some investigating on the other side of the fort. When we went back in, it was just Kara and myself. So we went down into that casemate. And again, we've got things recording all of this. And I said, we left, did you see the things that we left you? We left you some water. We left you some cigarettes. And we captured a male's voice going, thank you. The voice recorders captured it, right? So the, the, uh, the, uh, the body cameras captured it. Everything we had recorded captured that. And so for us, that triggered that response from him. Um, you know, back to the West Virginia State Penitentiary, you know, I'll tell you the full story in a minute, but we got responses from leaving the Days of Our Lives uh, episode. Nobody else had ever thought of that before, um, but it was something that we knew that he liked and we wanted to see if we could get a response because of that. So we'll take things like that. Um, we, so in our arsenal, we always have cigarettes, especially if you go to prisons. Um, we have some whiskey, we have water, we have crackers, um, we have kids toys. Um, we were investigating the Exchange Hotel in Gordonsville, Virginia, and uh, there was a spirit of a young child named Jeremiah that's said to haunt this location. So we got down on the floor, we sat down on the floor, and we were just rolling a marble back and forth and asking him if he wanted to play in this game with us, and we were getting responses because of that. We captured a child's voice, our K2 meters, uh, the electromagnetic field readers started going off. Um, so that, that's what we really try to do with those, those trigger items. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And I think sure. the humanistic aspect of that is, mm -hmm. you know, again, what sets you all apart from other groups, but also, you know, how could you ignore that as, right. as part of trying to interact with other human souls or mm -hmm. spirits or, or whatever you may call them? Um, you know, how could you ignore the most human part of being a human right. and expect something to be human and interact with other humans? Right. So I think, you know, being able to identify what are what trigger items are um, is super important. But also, you know, I think, uh, again, that makes me wonder what my trigger items would be, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of a scary thought as far as like I, the fact that I just don't know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, what are your trigger items or what, what do you think? They would <laughs> yeah, I, honestly, I think an animal um, such as a dog or a cat, uh, if somebody were to bring that into a place that I was inhabiting, I think I'd respond to that. Um, and, and, 
you know, really just, just talking and having a conversation, honestly, that recognition that, hey, we think you're here with us. Do you want your story told? And again, that's, that's what we do. That's, that's the way that we operate. And you know, as I said before, we've gotten some very interesting results because of that. Okay. And I, you know, something you kind of touched on there that you've touched on a couple of times that we haven't really acknowledged is the level of respect. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned earlier, you know, with respect to, um, you know, to the entities that you're, uh, that you're conversing with or interacting with, you know, I, that's something that a lot of people don't get what they, um, what they expect to get or what they would like to receive from life or what they even deserve from life. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a whole different thing as well. So, <laughs> you know, I think respect is, a, is something that really sets you all apart. Um, you know, while you were saying that, I, I was thinking, I, I just still really don't know. Um, but, you know, I, my cats left or they would, they would be up here as a trigger item. Uh, my one cat was asleep here on the table next to me for a little bit. Um, there you go. Yeah. But I, so, you know, I was also thinking, have you all ever taken animals? We have not, um, not on a, on any of our investigations. Um, the reason is, is we, we, we really travel a lot. So based in Florida, but, um, you know, we'll drive everywhere. So it's just a long ride for an animal. Now I will say, um, my business partner and I have opened a location, um, in uh, Huntsville, Tennessee. It's a, a jail that was built in 1904. It was an operation until 2008. So she and I, uh, late last year, we actually opened a museum, um, a crime and punishment museum, as well as a location that paranormal investigators can investigate and really um, hone their paranormal research. Um, so we have actually, uh, we, we had a dog in there yesterday and one of the rooms, um, the dog, when uh, the owner set him down, uh, he really started growling and uh, just would not really approach that room. And that's a room where we've had some very interesting things happen. So that was kind of a, an interesting response, not saying it was paranormal, but it was something that was like, huh, why is, why is he doing that? Um, so I do think that animals have a different sense. Uh, and I would love to take a dog or a cat at some point just to see, you know, what. The fact that you mentioned um, that animals, you know, there's a lot of uh suggestion that animals can interact with other planes um and they can see well there's uh, there's proof that they that they can register things that we can't um whether it be to see things that we can't or to hear things that we can't so uh, that's just something that stuck out to me that you said earlier was you know to take an animal um because there are times where my cats are just like staring at the wall (laughs) that i'm like hey what are you looking at exactly um (laughs) Yeah, there, there will be some point where we take, uh, you know, we have golden retrievers, so there'll, there'll be some point where we take them and just to see kind of what happens. But um, to this point, no, we've, we've not taken them on official, an official investigation yet. Okay, uh, that's what we, our dog is a golden retriever. Um, he's blind, but there are times that he just stands and stares at mm-hmm. things. Um, so I, I know that he's, he's able to see more. He's than aware. Yeah, yeah, he's aware. He knows what's happening. Yep. Um, you mentioned getting, uh, you've mentioned a couple times earlier, but I keep derailing you, um, getting into the, uh, the, the details of the, um, the, the lunatic asylum, the trans Allegheny lunatic asylum. Yeah. Yeah. You care so, to share some of that? 
Absolutely. So um, the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, it was the uh, Weston State Hospital was what it was originally built as. Um, it was built in uh, 1864. It was in operation until 1994. And this building, I don't know if you've ever been, but when you when you go and you start approach this building, it's massive. It's um, the largest hand uh, hand cut stone building um, in North America. And it sits on about 26 acres and it was built by Thomas Kirkbride in, um, he really wanted to follow what he called the Kirkbride plan, which was, um, you know, even if you're mentally impaired, you shouldn't be deprived of luxuries. So this, it was very opulent, um, has a lot of wings, a lot of rooms. It was built for 250 patients and it really had this sense of, care and one-on-one -on -one patient care between doctors and, and, and patients. Um, and it really strove to, to give those patients um, really a, a sense of rehabilitation, right? Um, after it was built, however, it really started to decline pretty rapidly because people could be admitted for numerous things, um, being kicked in the head by a horse, laziness, um, uh, egotism. They had a whole list of, of things that you could be admitted for. So a lot of men during that time were like, oh, my wife, who I don't like anymore, experiences those things. I'm going to have her admitted into the hospital. And so once you admitted her, you were the only person who could get her out. And so, you know, you had a large rash of men dropping these women off. So it was predominantly women patients. So even though it was built uh, to, to house 250 patients, by the time it closed, it, it, it housed over almost 2,700 patients. So a lot of overcrowding and that one-on-one -on -one care really digressed into um, different experiments. So like lobotomy, shock treatment, water therapy treatment, cold bath treatments. Um, so it declined to the point that it was really um, horrific for the patients that were there. In fact, my grandpa one time, um, he was, uh, he had to transport a patient uh, to Weston. And when he pulled up, um, he said never, he would never leave one of his, his citizens in that location. And he didn't. And so uh, that's the, that's the, that the level of, of, of um, you know, the, the way it has digressed in the medical care. So anyway, after it closed in 1994, it did sit abandoned for a little bit, and then a private owner took it over. And um, it does allow paranormal, they do allow paranormal investigations. So when we went into this location, this was uh, late 2015, um, it was myself, uh, my sister Jenny, my sister Michelle, and our friend Chris, and, and our friend Cara. So there were five of us, and there were two docents that were there that had to stay on for security reasons. And we set up our equipment, um, and immediately right off the bat, we were experiencing things that we could not explain. There was one instance where we were in the bottom downstairs hallway and all we asked the docents to come with us so all of us on property that night were standing in this hallway and from the other end of the hallway we heard this blood curdling scream it was so loud everything that we had everything that we had recording that night captured it and um, that was one of our best pieces of evidence so that was unexplainable we were capturing children's voices um one of the interesting experiments that we did, we were up in a, I think it was a third floor room. It was a, there was a child that said to inhabit this room, her name was Emily. And so we had, there's no power, right? There's no power in this room. So we're sitting in the room and there's a windowsill and we had a glow in the dark balloon. We had a flashlight and uh, one of our uh, electromagnetic meters, again, designed to measure energy sitting on this windowsill. 
So we're asking questions of Emily saying, you know, can you touch the flashlight? Uh, and the flashlight goes off. Okay, can you stop that? Can you touch the K2 meter? K2 meter starts going off. And we said, can you move anything else on that windowsill? The, the balloon rolls off, the light turns on at the same time the K2 meter goes off. So something is acting upon this and it's something that immediately acted upon it because otherwise it, it would have been stationary, right? That whole time. So the fact that something acted upon it when we asked it to was extremely compelling. So things we could not explain. Uh, we were capturing men's voices that night, footsteps. So for us, it was a, it was a great investigation um, and, and, and one of those locations that I, I'm really looking forward to get back to. And, you know, I think that's amazing. The fact that you all got such compelling uh, evidence, but also, you know, you mentioned that you're excited to get back to it. Um, mm -hmm. That brings up uh, a question that I had for you of, you know, you mentioned, I've gone back to this a couple of times, as far as, you know, the changes in equipment and experience over the years, and just, just like with any type of profession, um, are there any early investigations that you would like to revisit with better equipment or uh, more experience? Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, uh, Trans-Allegheny is definitely one of them. Um, as I said, it was our second investigation. So we acquired a few other pieces of equipment by that time. Um, but with what we know now and the experience that we have, I would love to get back to, to Trans-Allegheny. Um, uh, there's a couple other places, St. Augustine Lighthouse. We did those very early in, in our um, investigation cycle as well. So I'd love to get back to the St. Augustine Lighthouse. Um, Villisca Axe Murder House, that was another one. Uh, there were some techniques there that, that we've learned, um, new techniques that I would like to try there as well. But, and that's what we do, you know, everyone, is a different learning experience. And, and you can't use the same techniques at every location, right? So what we used at Tala is much different than what we used at the Ma Barker house, just because they're two, you, you can't compare them, right? They're both quote unquote haunted locations, but one is a 26 acre, you know, multi-level building. And the other is just a two story cracker house. And so you do have different techniques that you have to, that you really have to, to really learn how to use in various locations. For sure. Um, are there any other areas in West Virginia that you've uh, had your eye on? Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, there, there's actually, uh, you know, there, there's one, it's actually called the Bel Air House. It's just across the river in Ohio. Um, I do want to get to the Bel Air House. I do want to get back to, to um, West Virginia State Penitentiary. Uh, both times that we were there, again, very early in our careers with this. Um, so there's some other techniques that I would like to use there as well. But, um, and just, you know, just to go back and, and visit Glendale and Wheeling in that whole area. Um, as I said before, just finding the local lore and legends is really what we want to try to highlight. So there's a lot of, I'd love to get to the Greenbrier Hotel as well. You know, the Greenbrier, Greenbrier Ghost is just an amazing story, even if she's not there anymore, just to tell the history and the story behind that. So there are a lot of locations in, in West Virginia that is just steeped in, in a lot of haints and history and lore. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Greenbrier Ghost is also one of my favorites in addition to the Mothman. Uh, <laughs> good old Zona. Uh, she had her own story to tell. You, we talked about unfinished business and stuff earlier. Um, she had her her own agenda. Uh, I won't spoil it too much because I still have an episode uh, in my pocket for that one. Um, but but you know there are so many different things like that because uh, that one's really similar to what I mentioned earlier about Mamie Thurman. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. kind of this you know un 
an undeserving, unfinished uh, soul who, you know, just wants to be, just wants to be understood and laid to rest um, mm-hmm. in, in the way that she deserved. So, uh, I, you know, also um, you mentioned the Greenbrier, uh, the Greenbrier Hotel or the Greenbrier Resort. So I, that's, um, that's a huge, a huge thing as well. I did an episode on, uh, on that location last season um, that, you know, got a lot of attention just because of, um, it's something that everyone kind of knows a little bit about, but no one really knows a lot about. Right, and the full there, story, there, right. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, interesting aspects as far as the bunker, um, the the founding of the of the location, uh, just ha- just of how old it is and how much history mm-hmm. it's seen over the years. Um, mm-hmm. Also, uh, I was thinking about the Blennerhassett um, Blennerhassett Island, the hotel, things like yes. that. Yeah. Yes. I would love to get that as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. That's, that's one of the, the main uh, places that I had in mind, just because of the rich history and, and how much um, just of how much uh, history and emotion is attached to the story. So I, you know, in addition to West Virginia, what are some of your dream investigations? If you have those, if you're allowed to share that. Oh, there's, I mean, there's so many. Um, I, I really like to get out to the Queen Mary out in California. I think that'd be a great location. Uh, we still want to go international. We were, we were hoping to go um, last year, but obviously, you know, things. Um, so we couldn't travel last year, but I would love to get to Leap Castle in Ireland. Um, there is also a, a plantation homestead in, uh, in Australia. Um, called the Monte Cristo Plantation. I would love to get to that as well. So we do have plans to go international, but um, just just finding again those those local stories, those those little known legends and lore. Um, we also we actually have a spinoff series called Landmarks, Legends, and Lore, um, where we just we don't so much highlight an investigation, but we highlight different local stories that people might not know about. And so because that's what we love to do. So just finding those small places and and really bringing that story to life. Um, you know, the, it, the, the country's riddled with them. And that's what we love to do. Okay. It, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. It turns out that I, I think you and I aren't so different after all, um, <laughs> as far as the idea of um, just the desire of highlighting some of those local stories and, you know, on, on a bigger level on your part. Um, but, you know, I, I just, there are so many different, I made some notes and whatever, but um, as far as like, you know, the typical cryptids and things like that, but also the Lake Shawnee National or uh, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park mm-hmm. and different places like that that are local to us that are really big deals. But then when you go outside, they're like outside of our state, they're like, OK, I've never heard of that place before, but I've heard of uh, the Amityville House and, uh, the, <laughs> you know, all these other haunted places that are mm-hmm. that are really cool in their movies and stuff. But you know, just to be able to do that without the glorification of all the taking it several steps forward without the without the humanity involved, like you all do, um, such as like with the um, with the tether items and thing like things like that, as far as really reaching into the history and the people of the area, which is, mm-hmm. you know, what I'm really interested in overall. 
Yeah, absolutely. Again, just finding those small stories um, that maybe you would know, but everybody outside of your community may not. And so to be able to take those on a national scale, uh, you know, to us is so exciting. Like, for example, one of the, the landmark legends and lore um, episodes that we did was on haunting bridges. And, you know, just some of these smaller bridges that have a, a local story, like one in uh, Oviedo, Florida, um, and the Oviedo lights. Um, they've been a phenomenon since the 1970s, and nobody knows the reason behind them. But if you're not in Oviedo, Florida, you don't know about these things. So to be able to highlight that is, is really something that uh, I extremely, it, it, it just it really gives me a thrill to be able to, to bring that to a national audience. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's amazing. Uh, where can people find that? Uh, www.soulsistersparanormal.com. That's our website. Um, also on YouTube under Soul Sisters Paranormal. Okay. Amazing. And, you know, that's also where people can find uh, videos of your investigations and stuff, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So um, if you go to our website, uh, all of our videos, they're they're labeled. Um, so you see the investigation videos first. And then underneath that, if you scroll down, you'll see our landmark legends and lore. OK, amazing. Um, I had the opportunity to check some of those videos out and awesome. You know, like I mentioned before, I love I love knowing about the history, but then also taking a step further, uh, just understanding the now from a different Mm -hmm. perspective. It's just the whole it's a whole thing. Um, Yeah. Is is there anything else you'd like uh, for for people to know about or to to know more about? No, I, I, like I said, I just really appreciate you having me tonight. Um, you know, we'll just finish up real quickly. Uh, we didn't really touch that much on the West Virginia State Penitentiary investigation, but that to us was a great investigation. As you said before, we've been there twice. Um, and, uh, you know, we did connect with the what we feel was the spirit of Red Snyder, uh, really bad guy, because the West Virginia State Penitentiary, you know, it does have that long history. It has a violent history. Um, it was an operation from 1876 uh, to 1995. Um, I think there was 94 people killed in the electric chair there. Um, but there was also 36 homicides between prisoners there as well. So not a not a great place to be involved with. But uh, as I said before, we are capturing shadow figures. We've captured footsteps, door slamming. Um, and when we put up the, the Days of Our Lives episode for Red Snyder, uh, we actually had a really cool K2 session. We had two K2 meters and it was almost like a dueling K2 meter session with him. And we were when we were done, I said, um, thank you. And behind us, a male's voice said, no, thank you. And so that to me was extremely intelligent. Um, and uh, one of those things that, that to us really kind of showed that we were on the right path with what we were doing with the trigger items and with the questions. So for us, just a, a great location. Um, everything about West Virginia we love, as I said before, um, our roots are in Glendale and uh, just the, the people there are great. The investigations there are great. And we can't wait to get back. This has been another episode of Best Virginia Podcast, created and hosted by me, Jordan Mitchell, featuring special guest Dr. Christy Sumner and featuring music by 18 Strings. As always, thanks for listening. Stay wild, stay weird, and stay wonderful.